Glad you're here. My name's Matt. I'm the pastor here of the church, and uh, glad you're here with us. Uh, thank you also for those, if you were here last night at our uh, team uh, ministry appreciation party, thanks for being here. Hope you enjoyed yourself. I uh, hope you got a good night's sleep after all the excitement. Um, this morning, we are going to do what we do each Sunday, which is to dig into the Word of God. Uh, we've been in the book of Luke for a little while. We're still in the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 8. Our goal is to get through all of chapter 8, not today, uh, before summer. And then for the summer, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs. So just so you have a bit of uh, where we're going. Uh, if you have a Bible, you, could, you can turn there now. We're just going to hit three verses this morning. And as a bit of a kind of intro, just to kind of set expectations, uh, these are three verses that are a little bit different than the rest of the, the text that we've been in in the book of Luke. Uh, I say that because, for one thing, just three verses, not very long but also because there's not a lot of action in these verses. Uh, Jesus doesn't really do much in the verses. He doesn't heal anyone. He doesn't confront someone in their sin. He doesn't even teach. Really, these verses are simply a description of the women that were traveling around with Jesus. So I thought I would read them right at the front end, just so we can see what, what God has for us this morning. So uh, here are the verses that we're going to uh, begin our time with. Luke 8 verse 1, soon afterward, he went on, that's Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven, seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. I'm going to stop there. Now, the tendency with a text like this uh, might be to kind of read through it quickly, to, to pass over it, or to kind of bring it into another larger sermon. But the truth of the matter is that Luke included these verses for a reason. And that means that the Spirit of God prompted him to write these verses for a reason. And it seems really clear that the reason is, is God wanted to emphasize the fact that traveling with Jesus were not just a group of men who were his disciples, but there were women there as well. And in that culture, this would have been a revolutionary thing. This was a culture that did not expect that women would learn and grow and, and could be a disciple. This makes very clear that for Jesus, the, the women, though, that were present there were not just, they were not just there to serve the, the disciples, the, the men who were there. They were actually participants in the ministry of Jesus. You can see right away that the women there are, are designated those who provided for them, who were used part of the wealth they had that provided for the disciples. Our plan this morning is to use this, uh, these three verses as kind of a springboard to examine the, the issue that is brought up right here in the, in the midst of the ministry of Jesus, which is what is the place of women in the church? How are we to understand women as God designed them in interaction, interacting with men and and how is the church to see women? So that's our goal this morning. God's plan for women in the church, the roles there. And uh, we're going to do this in a few different ways. I'm going to stop, though, and pray for us as we begin. It's a big topic, great topic. We need God's blessing. So please join with me in prayer. Lord God, we're so thankful for your word. Thankful, God, that uh, we can come each week and expect that you will speak into our lives. Lord, that you will speak into areas of, of what it means to be a human being. Lord, shape our understanding of who you are and, and also what the church should be, who we should be. I pray, Lord, for our time now 
God, that as, a, as we delve into this fantastic topic of women in the church, Lord, that you would help us to be humble-spirited, uh, to have keen minds and open ears. Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak words of truth that are in accordance with your word, and, and God, that are most helpful for us. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would be shaped by this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to address this topic in three parts, uh, women in the church in ancient times, uh, in more recent times, and then looking forward. So kind of a, a broad overview, but we're really looking for some specific uh, principles and teaching that God has in terms of this, this big topic. So we'll begin with ancient times and begin uh, in the time of Jesus, where this text was written, where these things are happening. Uh, you, you probably know this, but at this time in history, uh, women did not have very many rights. Uh, typically, they had no legal standing in court. Uh, they could not be witnesses in court. They couldn't really own land. Uh, a woman at this time could not seek divorce for any reason, uh, even reasons of abuse. Women at this time were rarely allowed to be educated. And these types of prejudices were not just part of the secular culture, they were also part of the community of faith. Uh, back in these days, uh, Jewish men would often begin their day with a prayer, and the prayer would go like this. I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile or a slave or a woman. That was their mindset. Uh, the temple itself, which is really the epicenter of the community of faith at that time, also uh, gives, gives the impression, more than that, it shows that women were treated as a second class of, of citizen, a second class of human being. Uh, I'm going to show you the floor plan of the temple in the time of King Solomon. You, you might not know this, there were two temples. There's a tabernacle, then a King Solomon's temple, then Herod's temple. Uh, at the beginning, the reason that they even built the temple is because God gave them a plan. God said, look, I want you to build a place where I can dwell with my people. And so he outlined the plan to every detail. This here is the floor plan of the original temple. It's a little tough to see, but there are basically two distinctions. One is the interior part, the holy place, the holy of holies. Uh, the distinction there is that that would for the priests, those who went through a ritual cleansing process. But then the upper or inner court, that was for everyone else. Men, women would come and they would offer, make offerings, uh, sacrifices. That was where God's people could come and, and could be you know, close to God. But look at what happens when we get to Herod's temple. This is the time of Jesus. Uh, again, it's a little tough to see, but you'll notice there's an addition, uh, which is called the court of women. And that was where women were allowed to come into that point, but no further. So the, the legit first part of the temple was that part, but they added another part. They added another distinction, and you know the question is, well, was, was that something that God had you know, amended? Did he give any further revelation? Is that why they built it that way? And the answer is no. No, this was simply the, the church allowing culture to influence the way that it did things, and they added this section so that women were now separated, were, were further from the presence of God. Is this the pattern then? We have to ask, is this the pattern that God had set for the interaction between men and women in the church for all time? Like, is, is this part of his plan? And to answer that question, we need to go back further. Not just from the time of Jesus, but all the way back to the point of creation. To get a sense of when God created human beings, what was his thought process? What did he intend in terms of the dynamics between men and women? What we find there is not division, is not discord, what we find is harmony and unity of purpose. So let's look at a few verses from Genesis. First Genesis 2.18, 
Uh, Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So there's the point. Adam has been created. Now God says that humanity is not complete. We need also to create woman so that there would be a completion there, so that it would be very good. Look also at Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So if you were to just look at some of the details about how exactly God created humanity, you know, what principles would we draw? What do we see here in terms of God's thinking, God's intentions when it comes to women and men? We see a few things. First thing I think we see is that uh, human beings, men and women, were created with equality, but with distinction. Equality with distinction. With distinction, meaning that we are both equal before God, equal image bearers of God, just as much honor, just as much opportunity to glorify God in our manhood or in our womanhood, but there's also distinction. We have distinct bodies and distinct emotional and psychological makeups. God saw that it was best that there would be both man and woman. We also see complementarity. We see that it was not good for Adam to be alone. Things were not complete. With, with the advent of a woman, then, then things were complete. Then the mission of God could go forward. And there we really do see unity of purpose. See, the mandate that God gives for all of humanity from the very beginning which was to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with the glory of God, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. That was an instruction that was given both to Adam and to Eve. See, Adam was, was not the active one and Eve the passive one. It's not that Adam just needed someone to care for him and to sleep with him. No, the the mission of God was such that both men and women were required. We see them both active in the roles that God has given them. There's, There's equality, but with distinction. Meaning we do see from the very beginning that there are distinct roles. Adam is clearly the head of that first family. We see that because when things go bad, when there's a fall into sin... God goes and speaks with Adam. Adam bears the responsibility of that sin, even though it was Eve who first took the the forbidden fruit. So we see their equality with distinction. We see very clearly that, look, there is a mission. There is something that God is calling us to do, and for it to be done right, both are necessary. The picture that I think would be helpful for us this morning, uh, just to keep in our mind, is if you picture the church like a ship, not like a cruise ship or like a, dinghy, but like a, like a battleship, like going, like with a mission, going out into the world, sailing the seas. The mission of God is for that ship to go and bring the glory of God to the earth. But the challenge though, is that at various times in history, that, that ship has been almost capsized for a lot of different reasons. I mean, if you look through the Old Testament, there's, there's idolatry, there's weak faith, there's disobedience. But one of the factors that has almost caused the the ship of the church to be capsized is also male chauvinism. It is a, is a misunderstanding, a poor understanding of how to see these gender dynamics, to see the value of women as God intended. Part of the ministry of Jesus was to correct this view. I mean, Jesus was correcting the view of God's people in all sorts of ways. Uh, the main way is that he was fulfilling, the, the, I mean, completing. This is the mission we were told by God, but look, there's an essential component you're missing, which is the, the Messiah, the Savior, that's me, is what Jesus was saying. I am, you need to know me so that when you go out into the world, you know what the answer is to the sin of humanity. That, that's the essential component. 
But along the way, he was also giving us a clear picture of how women should be seen and how women rightly fit into the ministry of the church. So I thought we'd go back now to the time of Jesus and look at three things that we see about the way in which Jesus does his ministry, how he speaks to women, how he talks with women. So Jesus and women, the first thing we see is that Jesus sees women as having inherent worth, which is not revolutionary for us, it shouldn't be, but back in that day, this was a very surprising thing. Uh, I want to go back to our text from last week for a moment. If, if you were here, it was a story where Jesus was at a kind of a house party. He'd been invited. Everyone was sitting at table. A woman comes in and she anoints his feet with oil, causes kind of a big disturbance. Simon, the Pharisee who's hosting the party, he's all bent out of shape. But notice what Jesus says to him. This is in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? That's an interesting way to say that. I mean, of course Simon sees this woman. Everyone sees this woman, but that's not really what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Simon, do you really see this woman? Because, because I don't think you do. Because it would have been typical for most people there to, to not ever see women as they should be seen. With Jesus, he sees her. He empathizes with her situation. He validates her act of worship because even though she is a sinner, she is worthy of redemption. We see this in, in Jesus and all the way that he interacts with women. Another uh, main example is when he's speaking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. This is a situation where Jesus, you know, they're walking around all the time. The disciples go and get food. Jesus, he sits by a well and a woman comes up to him and the woman is known to be a sinner. Jesus speaks with her. He engages in meaningful dialogue with her. It speaks to her about all sorts of things, issues of worship, issues of God. And I want to show you the last bit of interaction with her and also notice the reaction of the disciples as they come and see what's going on. Here's John 4, 25-27. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. See, for them, they, they, they couldn't fathom why Jesus would spend his time speaking with a woman. We have important ministry work to do, Jesus, is their mindset. And yet Jesus is saying, I, I am doing that important work of ministry. I'm, I'm sharing what I came to share with everyone. The fact that, that I am the Messiah. That this woman needs to, to know me so that she might have peace with God. See, Jesus challenges the chauvinistic view of women and takes the time to share the hope that he brings. The second thing we see is that Jesus calls women to learn and grow. Uh, he makes it clear that the group that travels with him, the group of disciples, is not made up of two groups, those who are the disciples and those who serve the disciples. No, everyone there, men and women, are to be disciples. One of the clearest uh, pictures of this is the story of Mary and Martha. You might know the story where, again, Jesus is at another dinner party. He loves dinner parties, and so he's going there. And, uh, and there, the, the, the problem, the tension is that Mary and Martha are sisters. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him speak. Martha is, you know, buzzing around, getting everything ready. And eventually, she gets really, you know, upset. And she comes. Here's Luke 10, verse 40. Uh, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but, only, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. 
You notice there the way that Jesus frames that. He's saying, look, there's a lot of things that, that you have to do. And we get the impression, yeah, those, those are good things. They're going to trouble you. But there should be one thing that consumes your mind. One thing that, that you see as most valuable. One thing that's necessary, and that is to sit at my feet. There was no other rabbi at this time that would invite a woman to sit at his feet and to learn. But, but that's, that's Jesus. That's Jesus correcting the view of women in terms of how they should relate to the Lord. He's saying to the women there, everyone he meets, look, I want you to grow theologically. I want you to grow intellectually, to come to understand God through me. The third thing we see is that Jesus gives women ministry responsibility. Um, now we finally get actually to the women in our passage. So there are uh, three women are named, uh, Mary called Magdalene, that's because she was from a city called Magdala, who, uh, from whom seven demons had gone out. Jesus healed her of seven demons. Then you have Joanna and Susanna. Uh, you notice there that the main emphasis here is that many of these women, not probably Mary, but the other two were probably somewhat wealthy, part of wealthy homes, especially Joanna there, wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. They would have had some means. They were using those means to bless the ministry of Jesus. They were part of the ministry of Jesus, benefactors and recipients uh, of the learning that he provides. But the most impactful moment that we see in the ministry of Jesus is, is at the end. The, of course, because that's his crucifixion, that's his resurrection. But the role of women there is significant. We see that these same women, uh, Mary and Joanna, show up uh, at the tomb. Look at Luke 23.10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. The, the things they're telling is, hey, we went to the tomb. Jesus is not there. His body is gone. They're the ones who discovered the empty tomb. They're the ones who go back and tell the other uh, disciples. And if you look at John 20, 16 to 18, you see that uh, Jesus first appears in his resurrected body to Mary Magdalene. There in verse 16, uh, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So by choosing Mary, Jesus gave her a responsibility, which was a shocking thing in the time. I mean, just think for a moment that at that moment in history, the culture did not trust a woman to be a witness in court about the most mundane things. And yet here, Jesus is trusting Mary to be his witness about his resurrection, the first one. We see in all that Jesus does a sense of, of validation, a sense of honoring women, giving them true, genuine responsibility in terms of bringing the message of hope to the world. In a sense, this is Jesus trying to right the ship. It's been listing, it's been leaning to one side for some time. And Jesus is, is saying very clearly, look, that's not the pattern that we should see in the church. There are not two separate classes of human beings, two separate classes of disciples. There are men and women working together, bearing the weight of responsibility for, for the gifts and skills that God has given them, the message that they've gleaned from Christ, and then going out. We see here that Jesus is calling all of us to go and make disciples. In fact, that's literally what he says to a group of men and women on the hill as he's leaving. Look, go and make disciples, all of you, which is a repeat of the first commission, the Genesis. Go into the world. Be fruitful and multiply. It's the same thing. How are they to do that? 
Well, in the way in which God has commanded them. In the roles that God has given them, we see again the affirmation, the the repetition that there is a role of leadership in the church for men. The 12 apostles were men. But we see also that these men are to lead in the way that Christ led. With self-sacrificial love, with tenderness, with an open ear to all of the disciples, men and women included. We see this dynamic in the early church. Uh, There's a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple. And what we see is that they do ministry together. When they meet Apollos, who doesn't really understand fully the revelation of Christ, they both teach him. Why? Because that's what they should do. They both know Jesus well, know the gospel well. There's opportunity to teach. They both teach. They instruct. They help to build the early church. That's the pattern that we see from the time of Genesis and the New Testament. And if I had to summarize it, which I do, um, here's how I'm going to do that. The, the, the pattern that we see is this, that the church should honor women and exalt Jesus. Why honor women? Because, because there's times when we've been challenged. We have not honored them well. We see Jesus making a point of honoring women. We see this section here inserted into Luke, not by chance, not as some offhand thing, but honoring the women who made it, made it possible for the ministry of Jesus to go forward. So that's the pattern we have. But since that time, since the time of Jesus, how have things gone? So what do we see in more recent times? And more recent times, by that I mean like the last 1,500 years, right? So just so the big section of time. Well, we're going to just sort of, you know, take a slice of it. But, but what could we say about the way in which the ship of the church has been sailing? Has it been leaning? Has it not? Well, I think we'd have to say at least two things about that. On the one hand, We have to say that God has continued to use faithful women to grow the church and impact the world. We we see it throughout church history. Uh, Don and I, at a certain point, had, you know, when you're young parents, you're very idealistic, right? So we're going to, we said, we're going to buy a whole bunch of books, little biographies. Our our boys are going to love reading biographies. That's all we're going to do, you know, after school. And it kind of worked out that way. But one of the biographies we got um, was uh, a box set called uh, Ten Girls. There's another one called Ten Boys, and uh, it's written by Irene Howitt, and uh, it's made up of five books, and the titles of the books are like Ten Girls Who Made History, Ten Girls Who Made a Difference, Ten Girls Who Didn't Give In. They're basically uh, biographies, and I want to share a few of the stories from within them. They're, they're all stories of women who are using the gifts that God has given them and the love for Christ and then making an, an impact. Here's one of them. Uh, there's a short uh, Im- entry there about a young girl named Blandina. Uh, she was from, uh, lived in the year 160 AD. She was part of uh, the Roman Empire. She was a slave girl, actually, at that time. But she had come to faith because her, her mistress, the family that she served, they were Christians. And in the city of Lyon, where they lived, uh, the Roman Emperor decided to persecute that area, uh, wanted to give the Christians an opportunity to worship Roman gods or be tortured and, and probably killed. And so they were all rounded up. And the story is told of Blandina because the people with her were so concerned. She was just a frail little thing, like 17 years old. And they were concerned about, I mean, it just seemed like a a strong breeze would blow her over. And and they came to get her to torture her. And they prayed for her all day. And they thought that, you know, she was probably dead. But they brought her back at the end of the day because the guards were tired of torturing her. Her strength was such that they brought her back and they came back the next day. She went through it again the next day. And they wrote down what she said over and over again when they would give her the, the option. Look, you can worship these, these gods and it would all stop. And she would say this. She said, I am a Christian and we've done nothing evil. At the end of the days of torture, 
she, she was killed. A young woman standing strong in the face of persecution by the grace of God. In the 1800s, uh, there's a woman named Catherine Booth who was a, a wife and mother. Uh, her husband, for, for a time, when they were first married, would travel around. He was an itinerant preacher. But then they settled in London. And there she raised her family, had a big family. But she also had a huge heart for the people uh, on the streets of London who were, who were hungry and cold. Not, you know, there wasn't much of a support network there. So she began to feed them in the evenings. And she soon opened a soup kitchen. And, and the people from her church, she said, look, go out into the streets. Find the people who are there. Bring them in. We want to feed them. We want to minister to them. This soup kitchen that she started became the Salvation Army. She was the one who just had a heart for the people, loved God, and said, this is, this is what God has given me to serve. In the 1930s, Gladys Aylward um, was a woman who, who felt called to go to China on her own. And she went there and, and had a real fruitful ministry, the, the pinnacle of which was a time where she was looking after these orphans and there was a war brewing and they were in danger. And she led this group of kids on her own over this mountain peak and down the other side into the safety of a valley below. There are 47 other stories in this box set and hundreds and thousands of other stories that we don't know. And what we need to see is, look, there were moments in church history where the, where the ship itself was right I mean, it was standing strong and true. The sails were full, going forward with the glory of God, men and women working together. It's a beautiful thing. But on the other hand, in the same slice of history, there were, there were many times when the church was nearly capsized when it came to gender dynamics. Instead of men in the church leading women with sacrificial and servant hearts as Jesus did, instead of men genuinely partnering with women in the work of ministry, and ensuring that women had every opportunity to use their gifts and skills and to grow in the way that God would have them, very often men led in a very domineering and authoritative way, designed to keep women down, to limit the influence that they would have. Some of our respected church leaders have said some shameful things about women. John Knox said, Women are weak, frail, impatient, feeble, and foolish. And experience has declared them to be inconstant, variable, cruel, and lacking in the spirit of counsel. Thomas Aquinas said, women are defective and misbegotten. This isn't just a problem from centuries ago. Uh, Miriam Taves is a celebrated Canadian author. I'm not sure if you know her name. Uh, her most well-known book is called A Complicated Kindness. Uh, Miriam Taves actually grew up in Steinbeck, Manitoba which, if you don't know, is the heartland of the Mennonite Brethren. That's our denomination. And a lot of her writing had to deal with her experiences in that time, in that place, which, which sadly were not overly positive. In speaking about her writings and her books, uh, she says this, In them I am talking about the hypocrisy of the intolerance, the oppressiveness, particularly for girls and women, the emphasis on shame and guilt and punishment. She gives examples of cases of abuse that were ignored for the sake of saving face or for church leaders that consistently put women in their place and did not welcome their voice at all in the community or in the church. These kinds of accounts, these kinds of experiences are a devastating indictment of the church and her experience is not the only one. It speaks not just to poor leadership but to sinful leadership because it was leadership that hurt women and distorted the gospel. See, if you think about, just think for a moment back to where Jesus was interacting with, with women as he was on earth. Think about how those women would feel when they left that conversation. 
Would they not have felt just filled with the presence of God? Just validated, affirmed, lifted up, loved? They knew a greater purpose. They knew a greater joy, a greater peace. That was, that was the result of interacting with Jesus. And yet many women throughout church history have had an interaction with the church and have gone away feeling empty, feeling, feeling cast off, feeling shut down. How can we make Jesus known if half of the population, when they come into the church, actually feel farther away from Jesus? This all is a, is a colossal failure of the mission of the church. And the response to it has been one that has been in our culture and in our church, meaning there has been a, a movement, a women's movement for the past century because... Women rightly, at a certain point, said, look, this is not right. This inequality, this injustice, this oppression, this, this is not right. And so they, they stood up. They made their voices heard. Women's rights, feminism, women's studies. And on the one hand, from a biblical perspective, we need to say, yes. Yes, it was right that, that someone would stand up. Someone should have stood up, and they did. It was the right thing to do. There was a problem. There is still a problem in some ways. But on the other hand, we also need to recognize that the response itself has been flawed. It has led to an overcorrection so that the emphasis has become ultimately not on Jesus, but on women themselves, as, as individuals themselves. It's a really dangerous thing uh, to try to distill something as, as massive and complex as, as women's rights or feminism. But there is one essential thing that, that women's studies is about, and that is essentially about the experience of women. Uh, Hunter College is a college down in the States, and this was uh, a definition that was put out by their women's studies group in 1983, and it, it probably has not changed that much. They describe women's studies this way. Women's studies is the study of women which places women's own experiences in the center of the process. It examines the world and human beings who inhabit it with questions, analyses, and theories built directly on women's experiences. Which on the one hand, we, we would say, yes, that we need that. That's a good thing. That's what Jesus seemed to be doing, to actually listening to and hearing from the voice of women to understand their experience in that time, meeting them where they are. But we can also see the flaw. Because it says there that the study of women is something which places women's own experiences in the center. Now look, this is no different than any other academic discipline. You study economics, there's some other thing at the center. There, there's in the world always something else in the center than what should be in the center, which is Jesus. But the problem is that when we adopt this as the answer to the problems within the church, we, we miss something huge, which is the gospel, which is the pattern of God, the, the gender patterning that God has made from creation and intended to continue through the church, it, it's lost. Because then when it comes to the distinction between men and women, we have, to, we have to throw that out the window. See, the ship, the ship in this case isn't just righted, meaning meaning sort of sailing true, full of wind, it, it's overcorrected. And so that we go down back on the other side. And, and the problem with that is that then instead of 
instead of honoring women and exalting Jesus, there's a tendency sometimes to exalt women. It's a tendency that we all have. There's many other things that we can exalt when we seek ourselves as the answer to to the problem. But it's meant, it's meant difficulties for the church. It's it's meant at times a misunderstanding or or overshadowing of the, the true answers that we find in the gospel. So we've had a varied history as a church. There's been times when things have been going well, times we're leaning to one side or the other. Where do we go from here? How do we look ahead and and what implications can we gain from what we've seen in the scriptures for us specifically as a local church and and the church at large? So we're looking forward. In part of my preparation for the sermon, uh, I listened to a woman named Jen Wilkin, who you might know if you uh, were part of our ladies' Bible study. You probably know her name because we've done a number of studies uh, with her. She is the director of women's ministry at the Village Church in Texas, She's a very wise woman, great Bible teacher, and so I listened to a number of her teaching sessions. And in one of them, she was speaking to some ministry leaders, and she asked and answered two practical questions, questions that I think will help us to to take the scriptural principles and see, okay, where do we go from here? So here are her two questions and her two answers. Firstly, she asks, what do women need from the church? And secondly, she asks, what does the church need from women? So firstly, here's her answer. What do women need from the church? She says women need to be discipled as women. She says women need to be helped to understand how the truths of the gospel, how the teachings of scripture fill their needs as women, as the unique living of a woman in our world, things that women tend to deal with more so than men, things that another woman who knows Jesus well, understands the Bible, will be able to speak life into her life. That's what, that, that's what they need. I mean, everyone needs that. We, we all need to be discipled. But her point is that what women truly need is not just to know themselves better as a woman, but to understand Christ and how he fills the, the things that they struggle with, things like uh, crisis of identity, crisis of body image, fear, sense of lack of worth, a lack of purpose. See, the answer to all of these things is found in the gospel. Uh, there's a young woman named Dr. Joe Vitale. She is uh, part of Ravi Zacharias' ministry. And she lectures around the world on issues of faith and culture and sexism. And um, here's how she explains the unique answers that Jesus gives to women. She says this, I have found freedom in Jesus that I don't see anywhere else in culture. A freedom from being objectified, from being seen as just a sexual object, a freedom to become who God has called me to be in every aspect of life. And it's not about meeting cultural expectations and what society says I have to do. It's about what does, who does God call me to be? That's a great question. For, for ladies here, who does God call you to be? Not, not who do you think you should be, who do you think the world would want you to be, but, but your Savior, your Lord, who does he want you to be? I mean, that's a great question for, for all of us. But we see here the way in which the gospel answers the essential problems of our life and how it is that, that Jesus wants women to grow and flourish in every good way by knowing him more. So second question. What does the church then need from women? And Jen Wilkins' answer is, well, we need your unique perspective. And, and she illustrates this by uh, telling a story. Uh, the story is, is a true story in history. She says, in the 1900s, one of the most dangerous things that you could do uh, in the United States would be to give birth. 
the, the mortality rates for infants and for uh, mothers, birthing mothers, were, were very, very high. In fact, after the First World War, more women died in, in childbirth than in the war itself. In the 1920s, uh, women gained the right to vote in, in the United States of America. And one of the first pieces of legislation that they pushed through was a bill of Congress that was called the Shepherd-Towner Act in 1921. It came to, to Congress. Basically, it was an act providing federal funding for maternity and newborn care, and it mandated certain medical standards during labor. So basically said, look, if someone's going to have a baby, here are the standards of cleanliness, of hygiene, of medical care. Overnight, the mortality rates dropped. In that year alone, there was a 16% drop in the deaths of mothers, a 12% drop in the deaths of newborns. And over the next generation, there was a 70% drop in mortality rates. Hundreds, thousands of women and children that were alive simply because they were having good, proper care. You would sort of ask, well, why, didn't, why didn't anyone think of this before? And the answer she gives is, well, because when it comes to death and childbirth, there's one kind of person that never died. And that was a man. And so because of that, it's not that men were, were evil and, and wanted this to happen. They just didn't think of it. It just wasn't on their, their hearts and their minds in the way that women, they were fearing this. They were having the joy of, of having a child, the excitement, but also the fear of, man, am I going to survive this? It took the unique perspective of a woman to bring this to the fore. Tri-City Church, what are we going to miss if we don't have the women amongst us giving us their unique point of view? I think we're going to miss a lot. We need the unique perspective of women here in our community. Women with even their a varied perspective. Women at home, women at work, women of color, women in the various areas of life to be able to speak into the life of the church. In particular, so that we would understand our culture better. So that, that someone would have an ear to the culture and say, man, I've noticed that the, the women in my exercise group or, or these ladies, they're really struggling with this. How does the gospel respond to that? We need to hear from the women in our midst so that we can be effective as a church so that we can do what God has called us to do. So ladies, please hear me. We are a young church. We are growing. We have much to do and much that God is going to build us in, but, but my hope, my commitment is that this is one of the ways that we will grow. This will become a pattern for us as a church. And if you're wondering, well, what is... Like, what does it look like then, uh, Matt? Where, what would be the opportunities for me as a woman? Like, how are we organizing this? Well, it's very clear to us in Scripture that, like we've seen, that there are certain distinct roles. Eldership is one that is for men. We see that from the very beginning to the end. And what we see throughout then the church itself is that we are a body with many members, that all of us have varied skills and gifts and abilities, and that means that there are many opportunities. So in terms of outreach, we have Alpha. We ran it once uh, and in it, men and women came together. There were uh, women teaching, women leading, organizing, men doing the same. It was fruitful by the grace of God. We have opportunities to teach in community groups. There's men, women leading, uh, women leading, Bible studies, training sessions. We have opportunities to lead. Leading community groups, leading serve teams, leading in worship. And I think most importantly, we have opportunities for mentoring. We need, like it says in Scripture, for older women to teach younger women so that they might know what it means to be a woman of God. But this isn't just, I mean, there's a sense in which we might say, look, this is really important for our young girls. 
like for our kids to understand, to be able to, to see what it means. But it's just as important for our young boys that, that they would understand, look, this is the way that God created humanity with, with equality, with distinction, so that the mission of God would be effective so that both men and women empowered by the Spirit of God with the knowledge of the gospel would be able to go out into culture and, and genuinely care for those who are in need. It's not good for us to be alone. If we are to truly make Jesus known, then we need to do ministry in the way that Jesus did. And so we need to honor women. And we need to exalt Jesus. And my hope is that for each one here, we would, we would hear these, we would see this pattern, and we would be thinking, Lord, in which ways am I not doing that? In which ways am I prioritizing my own point of view, perhaps, if I'm a man, I'm not allowing the woman in my life to, to have the voice that she should have? And for ladies, perhaps, in which way am I prioritizing my own voice and not, not hearing from the Lord? In all of this, the desire of God is that we would, we would grow. We would grow in the knowledge of him. And that the mission that we've been called to would be accomplished by the grace and power of God. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we're thankful, Lord, that, Lord, that you've made it very clear that, that it was best for us to be created as men and women. God, that it was not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for us here as men to be alone. Not that we need to be married, but that we need women in our lives. We need women in the church who are active. We thank you, Lord. I thank you. I praise you for the women that we have, so many of them already participating fully, leading fully, with a heart to serve, a heart for others. God, I pray that, that all the ladies here would indeed feel honored. Lord, I, I apologize for those times that we have not honored them. And God, I pray that for us as a community that this would be a place where every one of us comes to know the answers that we need in Christ and that we have our ears open to the culture around us so that we are able to, to share effectively, share faithfully. So Lord, would you help us to remain even-keeled, to not dip to one side or the other. God, to be gracious with each other when we make missteps, when we, when we fall into one error or the other. God, to be, to be just patient with each other. And Lord, I pray most of all that we would know your forgiveness and love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.